Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 with Pastor John King. I think it's probably appropriate to recognize that today. Johnny B, let's give him a hand. Johnny B. And that's, and, I, and I didn't even talk about Heidi, but since she's not here, you know, she wouldn't, anyway. So we know she does a whole lot behind the scenes as well, so. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are, as you uh, understand from last week, we've started First Timothy. We started a new uh, study uh, through another book of the Bible. And today we're going to cover in Timothy, first chapter, we're going to cover verses 12 through 20. 12 through 20. And so while you're turning there, I just want to uh, kind of reiterate Paul's purpose for the letter. You know, we, we know, we found out uh, from our studies that the churches in this particular church in Ephesus, uh, churches have problems, right? Go figure. And so Paul had to deal with the, the problems. And what had happened was, uh, you may recall when Paul met with the Ephesian elders down in Miletus as he was heading back to, uh, I think, Jerusalem. He stopped and he called them and they met him down there and he prayed over them and he said his goodbyes, but he warned them. He said to the Ephesian elders, look, ravaging wolves are going to come into the church. False teaching is coming your way. Well, apparently they didn't heed Paul's warning. And so these, uh, these elders and leaders failed to protect the word of God that Paul had taught them. And false teachers did indeed come in. They were rising up with things that contradicted the things that Paul had taught the doctrine that Paul had taught. And so since Paul was up in northern Greece and Macedonia and he couldn't get all the way over to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, he sent Timothy this letter and he said, you need to stay there until I can get there. And there were several reasons. One is, of course, Timothy was a young pastor. And keep in mind, these are pastoral epistles. And uh, he wanted to encourage Timothy because uh, young pastors, pastors in general, can get very uh, discouraged. He also wanted to, as I said, warn against false teaching. But remember, one of the important things we learned last week is for anybody who uh, serves in ministry, and especially for leaders in ministry, to concentrate on the end goal of all of this. The end goal of all of this learning and studying God's Word is love and its attributes. It's not just knowledge. Because what that does, through love, we have a pure heart. We can, have a, we can cultivate a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And as we're going to learn today, without those things, we, our faith gets shipwrecked. Now in verses 9 and 10, as you may recall, you can see on your page, that Paul provided us with a list of 14 kinds of people who were condemned by the law. Why would he do that? Well, it was in order for him to exercise what the main purpose of the law is, and that is to point sinners to a cure, to give us the understanding of our need for a Savior because of our guilt of sin. If you simply stop there with condemnation, without giving hope for redemption in Christ, you and I are not extending God's love to the lost people around us. So it's so important that he explain that. And he closed last week in verse 11. He says, 
All of this he said according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. He's going to defend the faith. And he's encouraging Timothy to defend the faith. Do not give up. Today I have a couple of questions for you. First off, and don't, don't raise your hand and answer these questions. Do you think that your past life before coming to faith in Christ is beyond God's mercy and grace? Do you think that? Do you think that God cannot, you know, there's nothing he can do for you? I heard no and I'm glad. My other question is, is do you think that because of your past, because of your past sins, God cannot use you to further his kingdom? I heard a no. Well, let me tell you, you guys also know the spiritual battle that goes on with that, right? You know that the enemy is going to lie to you. And so one of the reasons why you want to listen today is to refute all of those lies of the enemy that you may have been hearing. And one of the reasons Paul's ministry was so powerful was because of his testimony. He's just finished with the list of sins that God judges. But today he's going to illustrate the abundance of God's grace toward him. How this chief of sinners will obtain the mercy of God in order that he might display a pattern of his redemptive love for all who are going to believe on Jesus for everlasting life. Let's read our passage. Verse 12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. This I charge, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have an opportunity once again to come under the instruction of your word. Lord, thank you that you set our... our sails aright. You set our course in the direction that you desire, Lord, if we will obey you and if we will follow you and trust you with all that we have. You have never failed us, Lord, even though we've come through tough times. And so today, Lord, I pray that we come to this passage once again as a reminder of your, your mercy and your grace so that we not only would be a pattern for others, 
but demonstrate your love to the people in our lives, the people around us. Go before us now as we get into your word and we take it into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So Paul, he starts out uh, in the first three verses, uh, 12 through 14, and he's going to give his testimony. It's going to get personal for Paul. But Paul starts out from the very beginning, and this is a pattern for us. Uh, when, we, when we come before the Lord, whether we're giving our testimony or whether we're just, you know, kind of playing it back in our minds. Oftentimes we have to do that. We have to play our walk to the cross, our steps to the cross back in our minds as we see God's work in our lives, especially when times are rough. And so he starts out right away and he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, he starts with an attitude of thanksgiving. Thankfulness to God is always a great place to start, amen? Next he says, what Jesus did. In other words, none of this happened because of Paul's strength. We know he was a proud Pharisee at one time. But he says, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Now that word enabling, that means to strengthen, to give power. In his own strength, Paul was bold and determined. He was educated. At one time, he was very self-righteous. He came from a good family heritage. He had Roman citizenship. But until he had been abled or strengthened by Christ Jesus, he could not serve God, and neither can you or I. Even though he thought he was serving God, as if you're familiar with his testimony, because he was persecuting the church and he thought he was doing God a favor. He was a very self-righteous man coming against the Christians. So Paul is thankful. He, is, he knows that Jesus has strengthened him. And he's, he also states this. He says, because he counted me faithful. So Jesus counted Paul to be trustworthy. You see, God looked ahead to Paul and what he would become. He would become a faithful apostle and a minister of the gospel. And the same is true for you and I. God looks ahead. He knows the end from the beginning, Isaiah writes. And so, you know, as we come before the Lord and you say, you know, I haven't been faithful. Uh, Man, I, I have blown it so many times. You don't even know half the things that I've done. Remember that God looks ahead to see who you will become in him. Then he said, he put Paul into the ministry. So he's thankful, he's strengthened, he's been counted trustworthy, and he says that Jesus put me into the ministry. Now, putting him in the ministry is he appointed Paul for his use. Now, the ministry, what does that mean? Is that just a pastor? Is that just deacons? Is that just church officials? No, because ministry is a word, uh, we get the word modern word deacon, or the, the Greek word deacon. And that means service, a servant. And so we're all servants. We may not all be apostles like Paul, but we're all servants. And he, he reiterated last week that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God. So God has ordained a purpose for Paul. He put him into the ministry And notice in verse 13, Jesus forgave his terrible sins. His terrible sins. He says, although I was formerly, and it's good to say that's what I was, that's what I once was. 
That's your testimony. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. A blasphemer is someone who's known for speaking evil, being slanderous and abusive towards others. Acts 9.1, part of Paul's testimony in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then Saul, his previous name, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he went to the high priest to get letters and permission to go around all of Israel and persecute Christians. And so he was a blasphemer. He was also a persecutor, Acts 9.2. I asked letters from him, as we said, for, uh, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, that was the early name for the church, of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I mean, he would haul them back to be thrown in jail. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor, and he was an insolent man. That word insolent, in, injurious, it's, it's one who, when they become uplifted with pride, heaps insulting language upon others, or does them shameful acts of wrong. Just a, just a, a rotten human being, basically. Isn't that the way it is for all of us? <laughs> I would say, look to your neighbor and say, what a rotten human being. But that's a, that'd be a worn-out pastor's device while I gather my thoughts. It's working. No, uh, sorry. <laughs> he was a bad human being. He was a rotten human being. We know that he was present for the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7. We read in Acts 8.1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. This martyr was being stoned to death and Saul was right there with him, you know, holding the jackets, making room, making it happen, allowing it. It said in Acts 8.1, At that time a great persecution arose against the church which is at Jerusalem and they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. People like Paul were scattering the church they were coming after him. Not only did they have to deal with the Romans, but they had to deal with their own people. But notice what he said after his description of his previous sins. He says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. You think, well, what, what did you do, Paul? Did you go buy mercy? You obtained it? No. What that means, I obtained, means I, he experienced God's mercy. He experienced God's mercy. I received his mercy, one version says, or I was shown mercy. And oh my goodness, Lord, what a blessing that is. And so he says, um, you know, I received or I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. Now mercy is often defined, you've heard this many times, not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. But because of God's great love for us, he withholds his judgment and provides a way for us to be saved. So as you look back on your life, you look back on your salvation, and you think about what you were doing in your life and how you lived against God, maybe it was bad, you know, not everybody's the same. And you just, you have to be just so amazed at God's patience that he withheld his judgment from you. 
And that's what you need to let people know, that the Lord loves you so much, he's withholding his judgment for you, from you. And he's providing a way for you to be saved. Now, he says something a little confusing. He says, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And you say, well, that disqualifies me because when I did my sins, I knew exactly what I was doing. I mean, I, I lived a life and I knew I was wrong and I knew it was bad. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how we need to be obedient to our conscience. We'll get to that later. But Paul says, I did it ignorantly. That means he didn't know. In unbelief. Now, the word unbelief means he did it in opposition to the gospel. So he did know the truth of the gospel. He just didn't believe it. And he was coming against it. Was Paul trying to excuse his sin based on ignorance and unbelief? No, absolutely not. Why? Because he said he experienced mercy. So if he wasn't guilty, why would he have to experience mercy? Why does he say, I did it ignorantly in unbelief? Paul, Paul's referring to something. Now, Paul was a, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And he's referring to the fact, and this is true even now, that when God knows, God knows you and I, when we commit a sin with full knowledge of that sin's wrongdoing or when a person sins in ignorance. Now, Sin is sin, and it won't get you a, a free ride to heaven without repenting and coming to know Jesus. But there are situations, and, and I, I like, I'm going to quote uh, Warren Wiersbe, because he explains this much better than I can. Talking about Paul's ignorance. He says, The fact of his ignorance is related to a special Jewish law, Leviticus 5 and Numbers 15. Now, if you're following with us on Wednesdays, we've been going through a lot of this. If a person sinned knowingly, quote, with a high hand in Israel, he was cut off from the people. But if he sinned in ignorance, he was permitted to bring the proper sacrifices to atone for his sins. Jesus recognized this principle when he prayed on the cross. Remember what Jesus said on the cross to the Father? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Most people, didn't, they didn't realize what they were doing. They didn't realize they were killing God's only son. And so he, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Their ignorance did not save them, but nor did Christ's pr prayer even save them. But the combination of the two, what did it do? Again, it postponed God's judgment, giving them an opportunity to be saved. Does that make sense? I hope I haven't confused you. The bottom line is mercy. Write that down. Mercy, the mercy of God. Romans 8 or 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But man, that ought to be enough right there to explain, to, to, to bring that point to full strength in our hearts and minds. Notice as we go to verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? Jesus poured his grace and love upon him. 
Grace, as opposed to mercy, is getting the favor and blessings that you don't deserve. And it says he was exceedingly abundant. Now, this, you know, this is just a way to say something that's just beyond measure. It's overflowing. You can't find the end of it. It's just super abundant. And that's what was poured upon him, the grace of our Lord. You can't out God. You cannot do it. And he says he poured out faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now with, it's like he's, he's taken this grace and he's mixing it or he's mingling it with these other attributes, faith and love, pouring that out into you, stirring it to this overflowing grace. As you receive it, you become able to believe, to trust and serve God, no matter what. He stirred that into your heart with love, the love to reach out to the lost even when they reject you and they ridicule you and they persecute you. Friends, Paul's life demonstrates God's amazing ability to redeem and transform. Paul once lived as an enemy of the Christian faith. He sought to destroy everything that Christ achieved through his death and resurrection. Yet God did not simply stop Paul. He didn't just put a stop to him. In his grace, he transformed Paul to be one of the greatest apostles of all, even though he considered himself to be least. He didn't deserve it, and he knew it. He took Paul's strength as a Pharisee, his knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, his education, of the, uh, his education in the Greek and Roman system, and Paul's overwhelming zeal, and he had lots of it. And he used it to help spread the gospel throughout the known world. And we're still reading about it today. The power of God's grace and his mercy simply cannot be overstated. I mean, we reach a limit of our understanding very easily. We reach limits of our attention span, all those things. But I want to tell you folks just what Paul would say. Your past sins do not disqualify you from serving God. On another occasion, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he expressed humility concerning his calling as an apostle. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Whatever position you may hold a pastor, worship leader children's ministry, greeter whatever thing you do in your service to the Lord, a parent who pours the love of God into your children as you serve God we need to have that humility because we didn't deserve it I didn't deserve to be a pastor I didn't deserve to be able to lead worship and neither did you but by the grace of God, he says, I am what I am, only by the grace of God. And he said, his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I'm going to ask you a question if you aren't sure. How do you obtain mercy? Maybe you're asking that question yourself. 
When Jesus died, he died for our sins. He took our sins upon himself and bore judgment of sin for us. Therefore, if we trust Christ as our Savior, God does not count our sin against us. Instead, he counts the righteousness of Christ for us. We became acceptable to God through the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen. Verses 15 and 16, he goes on. He says, uh, he's going to talk about that saying, Jesus saves. He says, the grace of accepting his gospel message is trustworthy. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. A saying that is worthy of trust. There's nothing that can hold it back. You can't put a guardrail up against this saying. It's so truthful. It's worthy of all acceptance. It deserves full acceptance. And he says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's a gospel fact. You may have thought that you were a pretty bad sinner. Well, Paul declares here he's the, he's the chief of sinners. He's number one. He's the worst. Jesus left his heavenly abode. He came as a lowly child and he lived a sinless life. He pursued his innocent death on the cross to save sinners. That's what he did. To deliver us from the penalty of his judgment. He goes, save sinners not free from sin, which means all of mankind, of whom I am chief. To be chief is to be first in rank or influence. In, in some Bible translations, he would say, versions would say, worst of all, or I'm foremost sinner. Now, was Paul trying to overstate his sins? No. Not when you realize that these are some of the worst sins, blasphemy against Jesus, cursing his name, persecuting believers, and consenting to their death. You can add murder to the list of Paul's sins, injuring them and being violent like a bully. David Guzik says, uh, he quotes... uh, Paul in Acts 26, he says, Paul explained to Agrippa, again, he was standing before King Agrippa, giving his testimony. In Acts 26, 11, he says, uh, what might have been his worst sin, he says, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them by persecuting them even to foreign cities. What Paul was doing was taking these believers and by the force of his authority that he had, and the force of his own will, getting them to deny Christ, to recant their, their salvation, to blaspheme the name of the Lord. That's something you're going you're gonna to carry to your judgment if you don't get right with God, that's for sure. And so Paul, he knew that. Charles Spurgeon said this, he goes, This indeed was a very horrible part of Saul's sinfulness. To destroy their bodies was bad enough, but to destroy their souls, to compel them to blaspheme, to speak evil of that name which they confessed to be their joy and their hope, surely that was the worst form that even persecution could assume. He forced them under torture to abjure the Christ whom their hearts loved. As it were, he was not content to kill them, but he must damn them too. Man. So yes, he was chief of sinners. But again, as I said, no matter how sinful a person is, no matter how great a sin or sins he has committed, Christ Jesus came to save him. That's why it's a trustworthy saying. (laughs) 
In verse 16, we see now the grace of serving in his gospel ministry. This grace that spreads all out throughout his, his discussion here. He says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy. Again, I experienced God's mercy. I received it. I found mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe. Your testimony, your conversion, the things that you share in your life and your walk as a Christian is a pattern for those to say, hey, how did that person come to know Jesus? What, how did it come to be that you have this in your life? I know how you were, okay? You don't want to go to your hometown or, you know, your family, your brothers, your sisters. They know how you were before Jesus. And he says, there's a pattern to believe on Jesus for everlasting life. Everlasting life is life in heaven without end. And that's our hope for the future. So if, if you're confronted with the reality of your past sins, we need, I need to remember the scriptures like this. I need to reinforce in my mind our testimony and the gospel fact, this trustworthy truth that Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now at this point in the letter, Paul, he kind of digresses. In chapter, or verse 17, he says, he's basically going to praise the Lord for the glory of his sovereignness, his sovereign person. He's just revisited his past once again. He has declared the gospel. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's expounded on the amazing grace and the mercy of God. What more can he say? Look at verse 17. Now, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible to God who alone is wise be honor and glory forever and ever amen I mean what more can he say you know there's a time to praise the Lord and Paul decided he's going to do that right in that letter <laughs> as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of God we will be compelled I hope as we grow to praise him all the more because our Lord is worthy of endless worship and adoration. The only thing that's holding us back is our, you know, our own self-talk or the, you know, the enemy, the, the body that we live in. But he is worthy and we will experience with him and with each other endless worship and, worship and adoration in heaven. And he's, it's because he's worthy of it. And so verses 18 and 20, Paul, Paul, you know, he gave his testimony, he worshiped the Lord, and now he says, Timothy, here's what I need you to do. He gives him his first charge, this first practical application in verses 18 through 20. He says, this I charge, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, the good warfare. Now he's starting to use military terms. Timothy had a call in his life. And this, he was inspired by God. And Paul is just kind of pointing back to that. The fact that he had been uh, commissioned earlier in his life to live out this calling that he had. And here as a pastor. And he says, commit you according to the prophecies that you may wage the good warfare. This is, this is a metaphor of spiritual conflict. This is really where the rubber meets the road, as you know. 
It's the stuff that goes on inside, the attacks that we constantly endure of the enemy coming towards us. And so we need to be able to wage good warfare. And so he's going to instruct this young soldier on some important things. Good warfare, to be good, it means to be noble and praiseworthy. Now, what does this look like? Well, a couple of examples, and we're going to see more of that through this letter. First of all, he's to preach the truth. He's to preach the truth. These are marks of the ministry. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left. So he said, preach, you're going to preach the truth. But also, you're going to knock down, this is interesting, you're going to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments by preaching the truth of God. And so Paul's encouraging Timothy, he's exhorting this young soldier to be fully committed to the fight and to use the tools that he has. And now he begins to get to some very important things that we need to fight this battle. Not only what we do with the fight, preaching truth and knocking down the human reasoning and the false arguments that come against God and God's truth. But look at verse 19. He says, having faith and a good conscience. A having faith and a good conscience. Now, he's, it's sort of a reference back to what the false teachers that were there did not have. They didn't have faith, they didn't have a pure heart, and they did not have a good conscience. Faith meaning to trust and obey that God is in control and will guide you. You know, he's never let you down before in your life and your walk with him. Why would he do it in the future? Having faith is to know him, is to fall deeper in love with him. And this, this comes, look, this isn't just something, oh, I'm, so, I'm more in love with Jesus now because I sang some praise and worship songs and I hung out with you guys. No, you have to. You have to know your Bible. You have to know God's word, what it teaches. What's the doctrines that you believe in? What are the themes of the Bible? How is it divided up? How is it unified? You know, all those things, you need to be able to put it in your own heart and mind and explain it. Because what you know and believe about God is everything. Because what you know and believe will determine how you and I live. So don't let people knock doctrine. We talked about that last week. Doctrine determines conduct. And right doctrine makes it possible for you and I to fight the good fight, says one writer. So having faith, that's one of the tools. You've got to have faith. You've got to know you, the word of God. But also, fighting the good fight means keeping a good conscience. Oh, we need to hear this. Because it's tied to our conduct. When you and I fail to live right, when we live compromised, it opens the door to what? Spiritual attack. And it weakens our ability to wage good warfare. It takes us out of the fight. We do not. If we, if, we, if we sin against our conscience, stand by. It could be an attitude, things that only God sees. It could be a thought pattern that no one else can detect. 
Some habit may be okay for others, but for you it's wrong. Why? Because your conscience tells you so. You should never encourage somebody to violate their conscience, even if it's not technically wrong. I, you know, technically I can drink a beer whenever I want. Sure, fine, don't get drunk. But don't encourage people that may stumble over that. In other words, don't sin against your conscience, but cultivate a good conscience. Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, there are two necessities for staying on the course to the end. First is holding on to the faith, which is the objective deposit of the apostolic faith. That means right doctrine. Second is holding on to a good conscience, the subjective treasure of a holy life. Armed with faith and a clear conscience, the Christian can withstand all hell. With faith and a clear conscience, you will finish the fight well. There's a true. Now, there's a, the opposite of this. You, you might say, you, you're probably fairly well convinced, but what if you were somebody were to say, what if I forsake the good fight? What's going to happen to me? Well, it means spiritual shipwreck. If that's the condition you want to go, you know, somebody said, you go from using army ter terminology to naval terminology right here. And you're going to go from, uh, you're going to go from fighting the good fight, having faith, having a good conscience, to a spiritual shipwreck. He gives an example. He says, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, um, have suffered shipwreck, is what he says. This is a metaphor for being stranded, for being broken, unable to navigate. Paul was in a, in a shipwreck. He knows what that's like. He's run aground. This is about being spiritually having run aground. And the reason is because you didn't maintain faith. You didn't hold on to your faith. Now you think, well, I can't do that in my own strength. No, call out to the Lord. Speak to Him. He will respond to you. He answers your prayers. He loves when you come to Him and you're struggling. He loves to hear you say, I believe, now help my unbelief. And so He names names. He gives an example. Two of them. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. These are some notable shipwrecks. How would you like to have your name written in the Bible as a notable shipwreck? Mm. And then he says, whom I delivered to Satan. Now he's talking about being excommunicated, church discipline, extreme form of church discipline. Taking them out from under the protection of the fellowship. You know, there's protection in the body of Christ. There's a place. We encourage one another. But he's going to take them out, and he's going to deliver them to Satan. Why? So that he will learn his lesson. So he would hopefully see how terrible it is, how, how what he's done is wrong, and the need for repentance and restoration. But in the case of Hymenaeus and probably Alexander, apparently it didn't work. He was, they were not restored. Paul would mention him again in 2 Timothy Verses 17 and 18, he says, And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus, and he names another heretic, Philetaeus, are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth. And one thing that Hymenaeus was saying was that the resurrection of Jesus, or the resurrection of the saints, really, was already past. You know, the rapture has already happened. The, 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 Jesus is coming. You all, you all missed it. And he's going around teaching people that. 
And he said that they overthrow the faith of some. And now Paul took that very seriously. Alexander, some believe that he was a certain coppersmith who's opposed Paul. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said that Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. I mean, sometimes you get to the point where you see somebody do something terribly evil. And I I was talking to a guy yesterday on the phone, long-distance phone call with a a state trooper. And an interesting story how I got to converse with him. And he told me he was a believer, and I believe that he is. And I said, you know, it's really important. And, of course, I said, you know, a pastor's always going to say this, but you need to find a local fellowship. And he says, ah, yeah, he goes... I went through so much. Uh, I've seen, you know, too many pastors uh, fallen. I've seen too many of them having affairs, having committing adultery, stealing church's money. He goes, I'm just tired of the drama. And so he's not going to church. And I said, well, is there a Calvary Chapel in your area? So, <laughs> not that Calvary Chapel is immune from terrible things like that happening as well. But a church that teaches the Bible and stays true to the God, word of God at least has a fighting chance. As we conclude today, just want to remind us, we know this, Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said to us, uh, he said, the earth is a war zone in the invisible. The earth is a war zone in the invisible. It's an all-out struggle of evil to destroy good. Satan hates God and everyone serving him. The minister who fails to see or refuses to acknowledge the unseen warfare taking place all around him or her will inevitably quit the fight, disillusioned, distraught, disappointed, and disaffected. And he says, pastors, especially those serving alone in small congregations, struggle with this more than most. And that's one of the reasons why I want to give kudos to my friend, my brother, assistant pastor, John Pereira, because, you know, it is so helpful, even as a small church, to have his presence and his help and his encouragement. He said, all of us here as believers are in this spiritual battle, even even though it looks like the enemy is winning. All you have to do is go on the internet. And you're going you're gonna to conclude, if you don't know better, that the enemy is winning. But Paul would tell us, like he told Timothy, to stay in the fight. And he said, this is important, he said, the only way to lose is for you to quit the fight. That's the only way. The enemy, remember this, cannot destroy your soul. You belong to Jesus. But he can certainly cause you to lay down your weapons and surrender to defeat and compromise. Don't do it. Don't do it. And the worship team come up. Now, some of you are history buffs. I always enjoy um, some of the quotes from Winston Churchill. And when, during the Battle of Britain in World War II on October 29, 1941, Sir Winston gave a famous speech. Uh, I'm not going to try to use the British accent that he had, um, but you can just imagine it. Hearing it over that crackly radio. 
those uh, war-torn people, they were sitting there, you know, hearing, wanting to listen. They were getting bombed. And he said this, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never get in, give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We would ask, Lord, by your grace, by your love, as you stir in that faith, as you stir in that love, that you would strengthen us for the battle, that you would go before us. We trust that you will. And we praise you now. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand if you'd like. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscience all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Sing it out. Praise the Lord. is more stronger than darkness through every morn our sins they are many his mercy is would wait as we constantly roam what far so tender is calling us home he welcomes the weakest the vilest of all our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the Lord his mercy is more stronger than darkness through every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is
What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cause. We stood neath the debt we could never His mercy is more. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.